Hi, this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. Hi, welcome to Sci-Fi Talk. This is Tony Tello. We have a really interesting program to talk about. It's called Killer Robots. It's going to be airing on November 26th on HBO. And with me is the director and writer, and that is Max Pozdorovkin. Oh, boy, I messed it up. Pozdorovkin. And he is with me right now. How are you, Max? I'm doing well. And I should say the film is called The Truth About Killer Robots. Not the Truth film. About Killer Robots. Yes, I stand corrected on that. You know, I, I, I found this program actually kind of disturbing. Uh, you really jump around a little bit uh, on decide on putting this together. What uh, what were uh, your kind of, uh, you know, decisions you had to make on what to cover? Well, you know, for, at the outset, I really wanted to make a film about global automation in the way that as a sort of forceful way that automation is transforming society broadly. And that, at the outset, you know, when I was thinking about that, that seemed very kind of uncinematic, and I didn't know how to do something at that, that big, but that's what kind of became a source of fascination. And then I heard about this incident where a manipulator, uh, 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 a kind of assembly line robot at a Volkswagen factory crushed and killed a killed a worker. Yeah. And um, and so we went there, and then in talking to the workers, we realized that they, um, but while they were kind of forbidden from often from discussing the accident, they really had strong opinions about just automation and manufacturing and as, as they've seen it happen. So I had this idea of trying to make a film about three cases where a robot kills a human, so examples of like literal death by automation as a way of considering sort of metaphorical death spiritual death, kind of a certain dehumanization as a process of automation. And part of that was because in doing this film for the last three years or so, I read, you know, dozens of books on the subject, watched lots of movies about it. Mm-hmm. And all of it seemed to have this one blind spot. Well, primarily it was all told in the voices of like the technology owners and the CEOs and, and the engineers who were profiting from the technology almost all of the material had this kind of underlying premise of being what is it about what robots can do for us. And I realized early on that I was really only interested in the way that what robots do to us, the way that they transform us. One of the ways in which that blind spot was made manifest is that when talking about the threats of robotics and the threats of automation, almost all of the other material was really limited to the future possible threat of high-level AI or on yeah. AI. And for me, that's the threat, but really, that's a threat that may come and harm us much later than all these other consequences of automation. And, and to get at that, I wanted to look at automation, at AI, not as something in the future that we're heading towards, but rather as a continuation of the automation process that's been happening historically since I yeah. the 70s or even from Fordism and Taylorism earlier in the 20th century. But the idea is that to see AI as part of that continuum that's being integrated in our lives in these small steps rather than as this kind of mystical, ominous thing that we're heading towards. So those were kind of the central ideas that when we started the film. Sci-Fi Talk continues, so stay tuned. Yeah, I think what struck me was uh, how automation has already... In, not only in America, but several foreign countries, replaced workers. And the impact of that, uh, where you, you you talk to some of the workers who actually go on a 
go on to a whole nother career because of lack of training, uh, you know, in, in skilled positions. So that was uh, that was disturbing to me. Well, you know, and I think that there's been a lot of coverage of sort of auto, job displacement as a kind of consequence of automation. And most of that coverage tends to be quantitative. So it just tends to be kind of about the numbers of it. Mm-hmm. And the numbers, you know, do paint a false picture. But for me, I really wanted to grapple with the qualitative effects of it. So, you know, for example, truck driver right now is really not driving the truck, but kind of babysitting it. So a lot of the dignity that people had from having acquiring a skill over a lifetime and then knowing how to do something well, a lot of those kinds of feelings are being kind of sucked out of it. Similarly, like with manufacturing, certain kinds of worker communities are as a way work more with one another, whereas right now there's a certain kind of alienation that comes in where they're just surrounded by, uh, by you know, these robots where, and the ding and clang and everything else. It's a much more to the broad tendencies of kind of displacement. And also to address, you know, um, a lot of times when people will say that all the fears of automation and are sort of overblown or far into the future, mm-hmm. sometimes they will use an argument or something like this is, has been happening. Why is the unemployment rate not higher than it is up in, in, in America? And the thing is, is that the economy is a pliant and kind of resilient entity. Before jobs are lost, they will be, there will be downward pressure to drive wages down to make them as low-skilled as possible. What's interesting to me, and, and really one of the most frightening points in the, uh, in the documentary, is you, you have a vintage interview with Isaac Asimov, or as we call him in the community, Ike, very affectionately, uh, about his laws of robotics. And what's frightening to me is that, as, as it is right now, as you point out so well in your documentary, those laws are not being adhered to. And I mean, it's not, you can't blame the, the robots, but you certainly can blame the humans that program them. Um, talk about that aspect of it. And that's really, you know, I'm not saying anything unusual because it is, uh, this is about, uh, you know, robots that kill. So it's not, I'm not giving a spoiler here. No, 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 yeah, it's all in the title. Asimov's literary device was really to introduce these laws as a way of showing that uh, a society that has a robot presence as ubiquitous as ours, or what he envisioned for a future society, will need these regulations. But yeah. the messiness of reality, the kind of the, the convoluted aspect of li- humans living together, will always create us that there will be exceptions, that these laws will be broken necessarily. And that's what he knew from the very beginning that they would be broken. So we, so we structure with him on three cases where a robot kills a human. And I'm not going to murder where it's a, a human is a perpetrator. Rather than looking at motivations, we try to look at sort of the social causes and the technological, ethical, philosophical, moral, economic circumstances that, you know, that explain why, the, why it happens or what the, these sort of incidents can reveal about society at large. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, uh, it was, as I said, very, very, very chilling. Um, and talk about your narrator is actually a robot herself. And we think that this is the first documentary to be narrated by a robot. 
Our idea there was, you know, I saw, in seeing a lot of movies done about AI and robot technology, a lot of them, a lot of them were kind of predic- like were predicated or, or uh, created around this question of um, can a robot be a director of a movie or can AI edit a movie or can you program a robotic arm to be a DP that could take the human out and then you can be closer to yourself in a way. Yeah. Which to me feels very kind of generous because it's taking these really, really high order, complicated tasks and setting them up as a kind of unrealistic goal line. And then we have a false sense of self-satisfaction at the end is that, oh, aren't we special? Aren't humans special? And to me, like the worst thing that I could have done, even though my movie is a very kind of humanist movie at, at the end of it, and I felt like that the worst thing that I could really do would be to try to, let's say, hire a James Earl Jones sound-alike mm-hmm. and have add this human gravitas to the whole thing. Because if you look at actually, and it's because I think that artists kind of perpetuate, perpetuate this myth that yeah. artistic pursuits are immune from automation. That's complete nonsense, because if you actually look at the economic data for mm-hmm. music, for photography, for film, it's actually the same trajectory that kind of a healthy bell-shaped curve that existed before has kind of disappeared. It's been hollowed out. That middle sector has been hollowed out and it's moved to sort of a star system distribution. And I wanted to engage with that. So in using, you know, so we wanted to say that, look, people spend, you know, thousands of dollars hire, you know, on a studio and then hiring a voiceover act and you pay them and you have to do several takes and then you're not happy with the takes. You have to redo it again. Whereas for us, you know, we used, um, an automated voiceover that we could constantly tweak. We even had to make her her sound more robot-like because to, for the point to be made because we could have had her sound completely natural and you wouldn't know it was a robot. Wow. But the idea is that it was, it was cheaper and it was easier. And the guy who created the Android, the news-reading Android, is a guy, Hiroshi Shigoro, who we have in the film. And he did it specifically for saying that this is the future because, you know, news anchors are just vessels and it's just such, such an easy thing to replace. And actually, just last week, there was a China introduced a the first kind of official made public AI narrator. Uh, so it's a it's an Android version of a real person that uh, that essentially reads customizable news on Chinese television. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and so you know, and so I think, but seeing that, we I felt like I wanted to engage with the technology and not just kind of take this perspective of fetishizing some aspects of human capabilities and then saying oh look we're still okay the thing though you mentioned like maybe uh, uh a, a, a you know a, a robot arm doing the work of a dp the the thing about film and, and you well know this is there's a craftsmanship to it and if you it's hard to program creativity and craftsmanship into a robot uh we're not our programming isn't that sophisticated yet. No, but it's, I think that that's... Uh, uh, oh, sorry, finish your question. No, I mean, I'm basically... I, I'm just making that point that that's, in, that's an important part of it. And, uh, I mean, humans are making films for humans. So um, if we lose the human element, it, it, it might not be the same films anymore. No, but I think that it's not that the distinct, you know, it's not that you're using it. For a long time, the human element will be present in some ways. But the idea is how much of that and how much humans are working together and doing all these things. So it's not, you know, so the human element 
can be there, but the whole point is that the human element will probably be there in the in the face of a factory owner who owns a factory that's entirely robot, you know, run. So the idea is that it's the it's the it's the hollowing out of human participation in so much of a work that's problematic. It's not, and I think that again the idea of like you know the entire um, human involvement being taken out of it is sort of a foolhardy idea. And moreover, it kind of serves the interest of people who will be the robot owners, who will control and and manipulate us for profit using AI, using this technology ad nauseum. So in their, you know, in their perspective, it will be advantageous to present it as otherwise, and to and and to and 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 to present it as as kind of just this thing off that's an off in the distance. And, and on the horizon. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a short break, and we're talking about the truth about killer robots. It's going to be airing on HBO as we tape this on November 26th. And we'll be right back on Sci Fi Talk. Back, we're discussing this really fascinating documentary airing on HBO November 26th The Truth About Killer Robots with its director. And yeah, I, I mean, there's something you tackle in here that we don't hear that much about is uh, an accident with a self-driving car where literally the driver is killed. Did you get any kind of blowback at all from the manufacturer of the car for you know, filming and doing the interviews and, and getting some of the uh, shots of the accident? Not yet, but that's probably because I think they all realize that it's in their position it's a terrible idea to, to try to be combative against the movie that's called The Truth About Killer Robots. <laughs> Just the optics on that are terrible. No, I think that they don't really want to talk about it. And, you know, with that section, we have a whole section on kind of service sector automation, which begins with um, the decapitation of a guy in his driverless Tesla. And that yeah. section begins with a phrase that automation of a service sector required your trust and cooperation. And so that whole act of the film is really about the way that we adjust our behavior a way that we curb our own intuitions in yeah. order to kind of adjust to this new reality and with joshua brown the guy who 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 tragically passed away in his tesla the videos that he was posting online you could sort of see this trajectory of him feeling out the car making these videos and grow, slowly growing more and more confident in the car's abilities to the point it's almost like an icarus story to the point of him becoming complacent and then depending on the car too much and the car failing him. And I think that broadly, again, what will ferry and what will be the, the, the single greatest catalyst of service sector automation will be us hmm. adapting and making ourselves, you know, work with, with self-service checkouts and do all those things. And it's not that you should fight against that, but that it's useful to recognize that it's our own kind of cooperation in this that will kind of push it over the edge and push it to a kind of critical point. Yeah, no, I mean, heck, I... I and we'll I, sort of suck out all human interaction, you know, much like something like Uber or Lyft, by virtue of not having to exchange for money, which a lot of people like, where the taxi driver does strip that interaction of a certain kind of humanity and human contact, where it yeah. can be just very much through the app, you don't have to say anything. And, you know, and that happens everywhere, and we're kind of accepting of that, but I just want people to grapple a little bit with some of those consequences 
And likewise, you know, if you see, you know, at the same time, driverless cars and the technology is also a great destabilizer economically. So in yeah. terms of wages of taxi drivers in the taxi industry. And so we're also pegging it to, you know, spate of suicides in the, in the transportation industry that are directly related or according to the, to the, to the people yeah. who uh, took their own life to the destabilizing effects that rideshare companies have had on their industries. There's a, another part of the documentary where essentially this, I, I think, I believe the gentleman is in China and he has essentially a, um, a robotic girlfriend. Um, and, yep. you know, he, he says he can't, he doesn't have the time or, you know, he doesn't look handsome enough to get a girl. So this is, you know, it's, I guess she's programmed based, they share the same interests and everything. So how did you come away from that experience? Well, for me, you know, again, I had seen while making this film, so that guy is a programmer who uh, married his Android girlfriend who lives in kind of an incubator with lots of other Chinese programmers. And um, for me, that was that I, 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 I was of two minds about whether it included. I, I wasn't sure. But then I kept on watching all these stories about sex robots, on like news pieces, et cetera, reading stuff. And it irritated me to know one that literally all of them, all of them centered at their core, centered around the question of like whether the sex is any good, as if that's like the most interesting question to be asked. Whereas mm. what I feel like we should be doing is thinking about what are the social factors that are going to be making this a reality. And in China, that's sort of uh, expedited and exacerbated by the, by the demographic disparity between men and women. So there are men that will never have the opportunity to have a girlfriend or any of those things. So that's the factors, and that's the kind of antithetic approach of trying to understand those factors. And that's true, but that will also be true in all the other countries because there's a gender disparity and there's yeah. people who are not able to treat the demographics of it. And it was wild to me to see that that aspect of it was completely absent from all the reporting where the demographic realities are really the single thing that will drive this forward. And when you accept that as a certain kind of, as, as, a, as the cause behind it, then you can start thinking about some of the real interesting, to my mind, issues that come out of this. So for example, when the guy marries his Android girlfriend, there's an old man at the yeah. ceremony that says, you know, it's humiliating to call this marriage. It's humiliating to all women, he says, but it can be extended to all partners, you know, in intimate relationships with someone else or in, in, in married to someone else. Those are the kinds of questions that, that come out when you start to see it as a consequence of these social uh, factors rather than a, a, a certain kind of vulgar way of, oh, what, what robots can do for you. Can you, you know get off in this way with a robot or that way. And it's just, you know, yeah. that's not interesting at all, but it fits mm -hmm. into those kinds of blind spots that I talked about at the beginning, where it's a certain kind of myopia, myopia that's perpetrated by a, kind of a technological optimism that's rampant in our culture, uh, which is basically the idea of a technology in some way or form will, you know, solve global warming and terrorism and, and economic inequality, all these things, and that the market will react and regulate itself. Yeah. And there's just yeah. a certain kind of very convenient delusion that you see repeated over and over again in the coverage of of of, uh, of this technology. You I mean you shot a lot in in different countries, especially China. 
how how was that? Did you? Um, it looks like you had pretty good access to to the people talking there and and getting you know their story. Was there any problem with that? I mean, yeah, Museum is, uh, is is set in the world's four biggest economies, and so that was intentional. So it's it's set in the U.S., in China, in Japan, and in Germany. Yeah. And uh, in terms of China, I think it was a lot of you know. I mean, when you're talking to workers, and for for me, it was very important to integrate along with professors and CEOs and factory owners. I really wanted a large part of this film to also be in the voice of the workers, the people who are dealing with this and dealing with the threat of automation most directly. So, you know, with China, I mean, it was a little tricky in some cases, but I think that we were eventually able to get access. But moreover, we were, uh, the task was made a little bit easier by the fact that we were, I mean, we have some CEOs and kind of factory owners, but we also want, you know, finding a worker is easier and there's, you know, so many of them at a place like Foxconn, that was pretty yeah, you know, when, after some time, we could just find people to talk to. Yeah, I was uh, that the Foxconn segment was really interesting to me. Um, I want to ask you about as far as HBO's involvement. Did you make this film first and then present showed it to them, or were they involved in the financing and the production of this? They were involved from the very beginning. I'm very lucky. I've have done a few films for them, and yeah, they just kind of developed with them from the beginning, and they let me take it. It started with this accident at Volkswagen, but they let me develop it kind of in any way that I wanted to into its current form. You know, the film took about three years, and so they were very patient in letting me feel like the story, because I knew, you know, it's an unusual structure for a film. It's kind of a high-concept movie, so I'm really grateful to have their trust and support in, in, um, in, in, in going through that process. That's so important. What I wanted to talk about is the fact that because HBO is a subscription service and they don't rely on, you know, commercials or advertisers, you have a lot more freedom than you would if this this could never be shown on, on network or even cable or anybody that has any kind of sponsorship. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, and um, as far as what you're working on next, uh, what, what are your plans? Well, I have a film, you know, it just came out, that's kind of, uh, that, that was a Sundance, and it uh, just uh, came out on streaming, which is called Our New President, and that's the story of Trump told entirely through Russian propaganda. And that's wow. Film, basically, you can find that on Amazon. And then right now, I'm just finishing up a film called How to Rob Banks for Dummies, which is about <laughs> my very first film professor, who uh, was a video artist who for nearly 40 years would commit anti-institutional crimes and make experimental film about them. So that's coming out early next year. Well, that should be interesting. So obviously, in your eyes, the documentary is far from dead. I think that there's a lot. I think that there's these great shackles on documentary as a medium where there's so much product that is so literal and so earnest and really speaks to people in this kind of very journalistic, dry language. And so I think that there's a lot of I don't know if it's done or not, but there's a lot of room to subvert that and to kind of discover new forms of expressions, new forms of making people feel something about this material, about you know about reality and not just kind of present it to them as you know as talking heads in archives. Well, the documentary is called "The Truth About Killer Robots" on HBO, November 26th, and highly recommended. It. It's very thought-provoking and really makes you realize how how uh, robots, AIs, 
that are in our lives already and the impact that they're going to have in the future. Max, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. My pleasure. Thank you. Right. And thank you for all for listening to Sci-Fi Talk. This is Tony Tolado. Until next time.